pleased to be joined today by Dr. Scott Grafton. He's a distinguished professor of psychological and brain sciences at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he directs the Action Lab, studying the neural basis of goal-directed movement. Scott, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thank you for having me. I look forward to this. Scott, what got you interested in the neuroscience of movement? Uh, I think, you know, I'm a, a, first off, I'm a neurologist. Mm -hmm. So I, and uh, I'm a very physical person. So you put those two things together. Physical, like exercise and outdoor activities. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to not use the word exercise in my vocabulary because it's almost a pejorative for most people. I really, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a strong advocate of physical activity as a way to think about um, what we do, what we do in the natural world. And uh, yeah, so, and, and in neurology, a good portion of what you see in terms of patient care uh, is people with movement problems, either movement disorders or stroke or what have you. And so uh, that becomes a prime problem. And when I started all this, you know, with imaging years, years ago, we had a very naive notion of sort of how we go from thoughts to, to actual movement. We had a lot of people studying muscles and spinal cords and nerves. We had a lot of people studying decision-making and cognition, but like, how do you put those things together? How do you go from, from idea to action? And so that, that plus the patient work. Uh, really motivated me to sort of develop this career. How much of that can we learn uniquely from humans as opposed to like, if you want to understand the fundamental mechanisms like of, of movement, you need to do it in, at, at a very basic, maybe cellular level, starting with simple organisms and moving up to humans. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's funny, you know, it, a good example would be like a sequential action, right? So doing any kind of sequencing of behavior. You know, we studied classic sequential learning problems in humans for for decades. And uh, then a colleague came along at UCSB and she studies, she studies sequencing in the fruit fly, right? So fruit flies have these beautiful sequential uh, actions, sort of grooming behaviors and things like this. They do itching and grooming behaviors. So you've, and they also have these little dance, dance kind of movements they do as well. So they're in super simple organisms, right? You can, you can get at fundamentals of sequencing. I mean, clearly there's a gap uh, between the two. Um, you can really, with the fly, you can really get down to like specific neuronal chains that would, would generate a sequence can't do that in people what you can do in people though is look at the flexibility of sequencing and generalization uh sort of more more um broad types of learning mechanisms so they're sort of they complement each other uh, but they certainly don't necessarily overlap what do you mean by sequencing um well uh you know, typing would be a good one, you know, or playing a piano arpeggio, right? Just with your fingers. We, mm -hmm. we, that's been some variation of that has been sort of the, the hallmark of sort of human research for decades. The serial reaction time task is, is a good example of it, where uh, you learn to type out sequential movements with your fingers. Um, in some ways, we, we give too much credit to that kind of sequencing, uh, you know, in our human studies, just, it's just so easy to, to have people do things with their fingers, but, uh, <laughs> we forget we're sequencing all day long. We put our underpants on before we put our pants on, you know, mm -hmm. and then you put your belt on, right. There's, there's so many sequences in everyday life that are sort of baked into our behavior through reinforcement learning. Can you tell in the brain the difference between someone sort of acting out this unconscious sequence, like whether it's the underwear before the pants, or if you're an expert pianist going through the motions, as opposed to that effortful type of motion, even if it's the exact same movement? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. You know, so, with, so, so if you think about the evolution of imaging, 
So what we were doing, let's say in 1988, it was just, could you even see a change in the brain over time as a person learned a simple action, simple skill, like pursuit rotor, learning to move their hand in a circle or learning to type something out uh, consistently? You know, would you even see anything change in the brain? And, and certainly you do. Um, the interpretation of what those changes actually mean is taken a long time sort of to unpack. Uh, and, th and then you get into the whole issue of stages of learning. And this goes all the way back to Harker and Bryant from 1890s when they were, they studied people learning telegraphy, like Morse code and telegraph, telegraphs, right? And you could see people go through stages. So they'd have a, a sort of a, a logarithmic learning curve and then they'd plateau and then they'd have a second curve and a third curve and, and they'd bounce their way up. And they introduced this whole idea of stages of learning. And so you, you put that on top as well and you realize uh, you, even the simplest sort of sequencing tasks have multiple um, sort of types of acquisition um, that are occurring in parallel on different time scales. Um, and that that's taken a long time for people to sort of get their head around, but I think it's really important. You know, the idea being like, okay, you know, you want to, you want to type a phone, uh, you know, you want a new phone number, right? Someone, someone you really, really like, and uh, you memorize it, right? So you, you're immediately going to use working memory and explicit memory buffers to fast track that. Then you also have this novel phone. So that you let's say you have a new new iPhone, and so you got to figure out all the interfaces of your body with a device. So you've got all that learning to do. And then now let's say you've typed the number in uh, ten thousand times, right? It's a whole different. You know, you know, we have automaticity, right? You're no longer even using working memory or 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 engaging in the problem of interacting with the device you're just your hands are just executing right so there's there they're in a simple case you've got three completely different kinds of learning going on we used to say it occurs in sequence but i don't think it's sequential i think you throw everything at the problem in parallel right you're, you're using working memory you're trying to automate it you're trying to get you know familiar with this device all these are different kinds of learning that, that take place in parallel and Is they, just operate, they just operate on different time scales, right? Some are fast and some are slow. Is a reflex fast response, like moving your hand away from the stove or the knee jerk you get if you hit the right spot on the knee, is that an example of something, a movement that's learned and just learned very early in development? Or is there such a thing as instinctual behavior that can bypass learning somehow? Um, well, reflexes to pain are, are pretty pretty hardwired uh you know a baby will withdraw to pain right so that that's pretty much a spinal cord reflex that's that's baked in uh in development what's interesting is sort of the second wave of uh learning that occurs in children and uh, karen adolfs is really the pioneer in thinking about this basically, you know, babies as optimal experimenters, right? So um, there's far less innate knowledge of how your body fits into the, the environment than you than we take for granted. Uh, you know, um, she shows that like an in, a crawling infant will just um, try to try crawling down a steep incline that's way too steep for it. To, to make it down safely, but it, it has to figure that out through experience. So she sets up these crazy slides in the lab and lets the kids essentially have, you know, fall down. But of course they have parents and everybody there to RAs to catch the kids and so forth. But, but it just shows that like this idea of, Oh, they have this innate fear of edges and falling and this sort of thing. That's not really the case. Uh, they're little experimenters and they're trying to figure you know, they're trying to figure out how their bodies work, you know, in the environment. So it really goes back to sort of the Gibsonian idea of affordance and like, how does my body interact with 
with everything your research me. is it all in adults mine is it's all in adults yeah mm -hmm. so how can you disentangle what is like a learned behavior over the the course of your entire lifespan leading up to the time that you're testing them in adulthood versus anything that's new that you're hoping to teach them in the lab well this is yeah so this is a this is a killer problem uh we faced quite a while ago and it, you know like one way to think about it is all right uh we were really interested in how people interact with objects okay reaching and grasping and interacting with objects now the problem with an adult is you know we've already handled tens of thousands of objects you know probably millions of times so our experience level is through the roof by the time we're an adult and so what does it mean to try to look at novelty in that space or learning in that space it doesn't it doesn't come easy um you can cook up really weird objects but um I, I, you know we kind of put that to the side and said look if we really want to understand because what we were really interested in was um as you acquire skill, does it change your perception of that action, right? So if, if if I've learned to do something novel, will that change how I see the world? Because I now have physical experience. Um, and, and the motivation for this actually came from the Olympics. I was at the, uh, the uh, Atlanta Olympics. What, the only tickets we could get were at the 10-meter uh, the high diving, okay? You know that the really high platform diving so you're up there and sort of in the wind even with the divers i don't know anything about diving right so i'm watching them dive and it's like all of, all of us when we watch on tv you know you just look at the splash you know if it's a small splash you think well it must have been a good dive right we re you really don't know much because i'm not a diver right i've never done this everybody in the audience around me was a diver and they they were seeing things right and describing things constantly that i'm like really what what just happened what did you see so it's clear that their perception of of that physical action was different than mine through their experience so how do you how do you nail that in the lab we thought well we can't do that with hand object or typing because we've done too much of that with our with their arms uh, so we have to go somewhere novel. And so we we switched to dancing. And we did a whole series of studies in the, uh, around 2000 uh, in, in dance, dancing, because that's really interesting because you can have, you know, you, you can learn a modern dance piece that's absolutely specific. It's really hard. It takes six weeks to learn. You can perform it at the end in front of a large audience you can watch other people do that dance. And then you can also have parallel dances that you're not learning. And so we did this group in London came up with the same idea at the same time. So they had ballet dancers watching capoeira dancers and capoeira dancers watching ballet dancers. We kind of started from scratch and had modern dancers build up a new, new repertoire and showed that, yeah, as you learn physical skills, your perception of the world of, of those kinds of actions does change. And then we replicated it with knot tying. So as you learn novel knots, as you see knots, all these physical or, or motor systems are engaged, just seeing those familiar knots versus unfamiliar knots. I remember an old debate in this idea of how perception is filtered I don't remember what it's called, but on one camp, you had the idea that your brain is soaking in all information and then only afterwards filtering out what's unnecessary. And there's some sort of top-down mechanism there. And then in the other camp, it's like, if something seems irrelevant, it never even gets perceived in the first place. So like in the dancing example, maybe you're noticing that someone's ankle is at like a different angle than it should be or something. And it's like, in one... In one version, you might say everyone notices that, but then just quickly discards it as irrelevant. And then, but but you might also say you're never even going to look at the ankle specifically unless you think you know that there's something worth attending to there. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, the danger of what you just proposed is it's it's, it's your classic straw man. It has to be attention uh -huh. works one way or the other. And there's one thing we've learned about attention is, well, it's it's a lot of things and it's really flexible. And, it, and, and you can have both of those things occurring, right? So we can be dealing with salience, pop out effects, top down control, bias, we can be filtering both late, early and late stages. I mean, all these things going on, at, you know, simultaneously with with attention. So it's a little, little hazardous to say, well, we do it one way or the other. I think with, with certain, I mean, just going way back now, with thinking about motor systems, it's sort of in this space. I mean, when I started, there were there were basically there people studied vision. People studied attention, and then people studied movement, you know, like how the motor cortex makes muscles twitch, right? And those those communities didn't talk to each other at all. They have different study sections at NIH. They have different meetings, right? And um, and one of the very first things, sort of, we discovered with imaging, and, and in parallel was found in uh, single unit recording in monkeys was a lot of the classic premotor areas respond to visual stimuli. So, you know, this hard line of vision in the back and motor in the front, right? It doesn't work, right? It's just not true. You have a lot of systems in the brain that are multiplexed. And, and so, you know, that led to this idea of mirror neurons as one explanation for, for why you would have sort of motor areas responding to um, the perception of action. Um, there, there are other explanations, you know, have to invoke mirror neurons. But but I think the more important thing was it completely broke down this, this um, sort of bifurcation or trifurcation of the brain in these different systems. It's much more um, multiplexed than we realized. And... And so in, in the motor space, what you see is if there's a graspable object in front of you right now, I mean, if you just look at any object in front of you on your desk, your pre-motor areas are already planning ways they could grab it, ways they could interact with those objects. So they're way ahead of, of your, like, shall I, shall I pick up this pencil or not? They're, they're already evaluating the pencil and, and what the, potential affordances are for interacting with it so there's a lot of feed forward adaptive uh, processing going on so that plays into attention because now you can say well i can part of what attention does is it says well you know the pencil might be relevant but you know i'm not going to pick up the computer screen it's a little too heavy and it's a pain in the neck and there are separate brain areas for describing versus actually doing something, right? Like if you have one type of brain lesion, you can describe the function of a lock and key, but you might not know how to actually manipulate them. And then if you have a different type of lesion, you'd be able to do it, but not describe what they are. Yeah, the class. So this goes back to Liebmann all the way in 1911 with yeah, his patient was named Mr. T, which is kind of fun. Uh, Mr. T was an administrator, a Viennese administrator. He had a stroke and he had an aphasia, so he couldn't talk uh, very well. And uh, he had uh, a paresis of his one hand, but um, he could comprehend. So you could say, Mr. T, go to the window and, and look out. He would get up, walk over and look out the window. So he's clearly understanding what you'd say to him. Now you could say, okay, with your good hand, show me how to use a, a hammer. And he would, you know, he would have some strange movement with his hand or show me how to use a comb. And he couldn't, couldn't, he couldn't um, demonstrate how to do, do actions. And that was generally associated with a, a, a left supramarginal gyrus parietal lesion. And there's been tons of studies since showing that's sort of the, the sweet spot in the brain for this kind of a practice. You know, we've had a lot of imaging studies showing this over the years. So, so that's sort of the first cut. And then you get into slicing and dicing sort of the syndrome into, well, is it conceptual? 
is is this problem a conceptual one? So some patients, it seems, seems to be more conceptual. You know, it's like, uh, what is a hammer? Or if you show them a bunch of tools and say, which of these would you use to solve a problem? They wouldn't know which tool to use. So there's sort of that high level. So you get into semantic kinds of knowledge all the way down through, yeah, they know which tool to use, but their hand just doesn't sequence, you know, the movements right with the, the object. There's some that are quite paradoxical. They can't show you how, how to use an object, but you put the object in their hand and they can use it perfectly. So there's all these there's there's all these different subtypes, which which tells you, yeah, there's modularity within this system, spanning mm -hmm. all the way from very high level semantic cognitive all the way down through fine-grained sort of sequential specific movements you'd have with the with the, the execution. What you see action. with those early lesion studies is replicated in later neuroimaging studies. The same areas have the same functions. Oh, totally. Yeah, that's that's been one of the the sort of the nicer um, sort of narratives over over the last decade or two is really strong consistency, and it's still going on. We um, we've got some recent papers, you know. Like one of the issues that comes up is um, so. So if you think about where semantic knowledge really sits, like people with semantic dementias, um, it, it tend to be where they lose knowledge of of what things are. Um, it tends to be left temporal lobe, and left temporal lobe is also really important for recognizing objects. Now, the supermarginal gyrus in the parietal lobe is this area for apraxia, right? For sort of going from idea to action with your with your body. So it turns out there's this really strong white matter tract that connects inferior temporal cortex up with SMG and, and, and related regions. And so now you can, with sort of state-of-the-art connectivity imaging, you can sort of find patients where they're... There's a very specific disconnection between these two parts of the brain. So your ability to sort of look at an object, understand its texture, what its shape is, what it's for, you know, for what its meaning is, is, is disconnected from how you would use it. How do you know how to interpret the different strengths of your findings? So for example, more connection or more brain activity could mean more function but you could also tell the opposite story. You could say something like less activity that shows up on the scanner means greater efficiency. So that's actually what you want. Oh, that's a great question. It's a, it's and it's uh, it it yeah. So so here's an example. Here's a really simple example. One of the very first diffusion scans um, that was done. Uh, we did it at Dartmouth. And we looked at corpus callosum fractional anisotropy. And um, the degree of connectivity between the, essentially the two hemispheres in a reaction time task, intermanual reaction time task. And so you could say, is more connectivity going to make interhemispheric communication faster or slower and lead to faster or slower reaction times? when you're trying to push information between the hemispheres, right? And you don't know, right? It's a total, it could go either way. It's a complete bet. Um, and that, and it was counterintuitive, the results were counterintuitive, but it is what it is. And and so that keeps coming up over and over. It's like, is more anisotropy or more white matter integrity, is the jargon people like to use, um, going to lead to faster, slower cognition, motor behavior, visual processing, what have you. And, and it's all over the map. Part of, part, part of the reason it's all over the map is, is really specific technical problems with the measurement itself. But the other is just conceptual. I think the way around the connectivity work, the, what we've been doing is, um, it's really, it's much simpler. You basically take, take the human connectome project data set, which is, you, know, you have like a thousand brains, okay? So you have a really normative data set. And now I can take a patient 
who just has like a regular MRI that, that was done in the hospital. And I, so I know where the lesion is and I know what their deficit is. And I can project that into the human connectome project and say, what would, what's the most likely disconnection given my thousand people, you know, I have a pretty good probabilistic estimate of what brain areas are disconnected from each other and the severity of those disconnections. And so mm -hmm. you can, you can relate their disc, you know, their simple lesion with a good estimate of what areas aren't talking to each other. So that kind of inference is pretty clean. Um, the harder one I think is, is when you get into the functional space, this goes, I mean, we dealt with this with Parkinson's years and years ago. So if you have a Parkinson's patient and you have a move, a joystick at a standard rate, um, right. Yeah. And you compare that to normal people moving it at the same, same velocity. Uh, you get many more brain areas activated in the Parkinson's patient, except for the, what you would normally see, like the motor cortex is underactivated. The supplementary motor area is underactivated, but a whole bunch of other areas are overactivated. So what is that? Is it compensation? Is it accommodation? Is it, um, you know, is the brain uh, reorganizing what's going on, right? It can be really hard just in that simple case to know what's going on in the patient. Now, what's interesting about them is if you give them DOPA, L-DOPA, or you, they've got a stimulator and you turn the stimulator on, things all normalize to they, they converge towards the normal pattern. So that's a case where you can sort of make an inference, you know, that says, well probably all, all this overactivity is a compensatory strategy of other brain areas just trying to boost performance, sustain performance when the sort of the, the primaries are underperforming. But that's what, yeah. So it works in that case, but you know, not necessarily, that's not necessarily going to be the interpretation for, for every neurodegeneration. I mean, it came up early in, in Alzheimer's as well. Some of the very earliest, Alzheimer's metabolic studies, you know, where, you know, you've got hippocampal degeneration, loss of cells in the hippocampus and temporal lobe from Alzheimer's disease. They actually show overactivity of glucose metabolism in their residual hippocampus. Same idea as if whatever, whatever's left is working overtime to try to sustain performance. Mm -hmm. right? So you can, you, you, it, it can be very hard to, to, to make strong connections between over or under activity and what, what the brain's actually trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, as a clinician, you sort of get the impression that uh, brains have this incredible ability to try to throw every resource they can at a problem to functionally accommodate whatever deficit you have. They will use every trick in the book to sustain performance. You see this in stroke patients, you know, they got a paretic hand. Well, they'll learn to hold a jar with their, with their upper arm and, you know, they'll, they'll squeeze things in weird ways and just their, their body will, will naturally find unusual solutions to sustain performance. So in the motor domain, we see functional um, adaptation all the time. And I think we do the same in, across all sort of cognitive domains. It's just harder to map. I know in young children, there's a lot more neuroplasticity and it's easier to build those compensatory mechanisms. But do you see the same thing with age in adulthood? Like, would it make a difference if you have a stroke at 30 or 40 or 50? Uh, in general, the older you are with a stroke of the same size, let's say, let's say magnitude, uh, the worse you're going to do. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much universal. Um, but, uh, you know, once, once you hit the age of seven or so, six or seven, <laughs> all stroke, you're going to be limited regardless. 
um, you're going to be hit pretty hard if with a significant size stroke. Is that an earlier age of seven because a motor area or perception areas of the brain are much more primitive and mature earlier? Because you, you hear a lot about your brain is still maturing well into the 20s, but that's more like yeah. frontal cortex regions. Frontal cortex, yeah. Yeah, so a, gr a great example would be um, a child with, um, or an infant with what's called infantile spasms. So they have really severe seizures uh, that you cannot control with medications. And they might have a, a uh, it driven by something called tuberous sclerosis, which is basically malformations. So you have these nodules in the cortex that are just causing seizures all the time. And if, and the kid won't develop cognitively because they're essentially having either having a seizure or recovering from a seizure. So they're just, they're out to lunch. And if they're lucky, all the abnormalities are in one hemisphere. And so you can, you can, you can take that hemisphere out. Now you leave in the basal ganglia and the thalamus, you're just doing the cortical resection. And, and it's quite remarkable. So you do that in a two-year-old or a three-year-old, really up to a four-year-old, um, you know, 20 years later, you know, their speech is going to be normal. Affect, everything about them is going to be normal, except you'll find that their contralateral hand will be a little bit spastic. So the fine hand dexterity is, is lost. So you really do need your motor cortex for, for dexterous movement of the hand. And their walk might be a little bit stiff. So they're, they're, that leg, the contralateral leg will be a, have a little bit of a stiffness to it. But other than that, they look really good. And so it, it fits with your idea, right? That, um, yeah, the motor cortex comes in early and you're trying to, you know, it's it's committed to learning dexterous movement, you know, as soon as, as, soon as you're born. So that, that system is, is locking in pretty quick, but everything else is pretty flexible. You actually, have... I had to, actually to, like uh, six months ago, I had a, a, you know, we do a lot of scans and uh, undergrads and I had a volunteer come in for study, totally normal, you know, uh, honor student, great, great, great person to come in, put them in the scanner. They don't have a left temporal cortex. They don't have a left temporal lobe. It's just not there. <laughs> it's missing. <laughs> so, you know, come on out. We will show you your scan. We got to talk, and uh, yeah, yeah, and it's just it's they have a congenital cyst, so just when the brain formed, the cyst formed, the left temporal lobe never never developed. Everything so this wasn't a surgery that they intervened no. with early on. No. This is just it wasn't there. No, it just was never there. Yeah, never. Yeah. And so they're a beautiful example of something, and because it didn't reach up into the motor areas. They didn't have any motor deficit either. Now, mm -hmm. I bet if you, you know, like the neuropsychologist will tell you, well, if we really test them, like really fast semantic tests or, you know, like uh, really sophisticated language testing, we might find some deficits. But but in general, they're subtle, right? Uh, in terms of that person's ability to function in the world, you're not going to notice anything. So if, if you don't notice any functional deficits, what comes out of a, we need to talk? What, what do you actually do if you find out that you think you have a completely normal brain and then it turns out a piece is missing, but you're doing fine? Yeah, you know, it's so each this is. Um, this is institutional specific. Each research center that's doing fMRI research will handle this issue, incidental findings differently. Uh, we're not a medical center. We're not doing clinical diagnoses, but we do um, put in our consent forms. Look, if we find something significant, we're gonna we'll inform you, right? If there's something obvious there, we'll let you know. Now, there's a, there's a fine line. Like there's a lot of people with, like, the base of the the skull might be a little bit enlarged, and there's a little more spinal fluid there. So it kind of stands out. You see that all the time. So it's like, so what, right? We don't even, it's just like, a, it's like having a big thumb, right? Uh, so it's sort of, there's a limit to, to um, how severe things need to be. Now, when someone's missing a lobe of their brain, 
I th- uh, to me, it's important to tell them because like if suppose they get in a car accident or something and they get a CAT scan and they don't know about this and everybody's like, oh my God, look at this. You know, um, they already know that that's there. So it it'll, for their future medical care, it really allows them to sort of do things wisely. Um, I see. Yeah. And, this, and, and, it, and and for students, it's fascinating, right? I mean, yeah. it's like, you know. Uh, if you're missing a piece of your brain, is it, is there literally a hollow spot or does it fill up with spinal fluid or something else? It's always, it's always spinal fluid. Almost, all, well, almost always it's, it's like a bed. It's like a little membrane filled with spinal fluid that connects in with the ventricles in some way. Yeah. Does that make you more susceptible to concussions or things like that? Because there's this fluid region that can be shaken around more easily, or there's more regions, more room for other regions to get shaken into. That's a great question. And I don't know because it doesn't happen enough to know, you know, like we just don't have the evidence to know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, a, it is a strange problem. And like when in those one-year-olds or two-year-olds, when they do the hemispherectomies, you have this problem of, right, I've just taken out half your brain. So which, what do we put, what do we put in there to fill the space? Cause in that case, you don't want I mean, things really could jostle around, right? You don't want, so there's, you put in ping pong balls, you, you know, hydrocell, hydrogel. There's a lot, there's a whole surgical literature on what you would sort of fill, fill in in that space. But generally, generally water is a, a fluid filled bag of water is a pretty good uh, cushion. Mm-hmm. So for, um, for like risk of concussions and things like that, I think they're in pretty good shape. You mentioned working on the Human Connectome Project, HCP. Do you happen to work with Randy Buckner on that? I have not, no. Um, I've just benefited from all of his hard work uh-huh. putting a lot so, of that together. Yeah. I know that Randy's has a large role in HCP, but he's also now moving towards uh, uh, these individual-focused studies. So like, rather than doing one or two scans on a whole bunch of people, you're doing a whole bunch of scans on very few people. And I guess there are trade-offs there because when you average across many individuals, there's noise in the data and the whole brain picture gets fuzzier and you can compensate for that by recruiting like thousands of individuals, like what you're doing in HCP. But then the polar opposite way of compensating for that would be like, just focus highly on highly specifically on individuals with many scans. So could we talk about the pros and cons to each of those and, and which one comes up more often in your line of research? Yeah, I, I feel like I'm uh, one of the leaders in that strategy of doing dense sampling. Um, certainly Russ Poldrack was one of the first to do it. You know, he's, I'm going to scan myself. I don't know how many times he did it. Um Years before that, we had done a learning study where uh, we had this really hard mechanical task where you had to, while you're in the scanner without any vision, you had to put a bunch of nuts and bolts together on this board. So you had to, we called it the Vermont mechanics task. It's like you're under a car trying to put a bunch of nuts and bolts together, right? Uh, Really hard. Uh, Five of us scanned ourselves doing this for a year. It's, and this probably, we did that, what, in 19, 2000, right? So this is long before everybody else was thinking about dense sampling. So so my original motivation was for learning studies. If you really want to look at long-term sort of autom- development of automaticity, let's do it over this really, really long time horizon. And then we had people come back six months later, right, to look at retention and so forth. We never published it. It was just, it was an early crappy scanner. And it was kind of noisy data. I was never satisfied with the basically the quality of the data. Um, so we never published it, but it, it led me to think, yeah, let's just do these. Let's just do some dense sampling, especially in learning where you're really trying to within an individual, what's really changing. Uh, and then um, a couple of years ago, uh, Lauren Pritchard, she was a new graduate student at UCSB. She's really interested in how the menstrual cycle impacts brain activity in, in healthy women. And so he said, well, why don't you just scan yourself every day? 
for a cycle. <laughs> I just said, okay. So we did it, right? And then again on oral contraceptives. And I can I can give her name because she wrote the papers. We all, you know, we all know it was her. That's the subject. And um, yeah, so it's really neat because now you can people had sort of sporadically looked at um sort of the effect of you know estradiol and progesterone on on, on sort of cognitive systems. But here you've got every single day right so you can really look at network dynamics and structural changes in exquisite detail um and those are really successful studies and, and so they call that the 28 me project and they, they've they're still doing it with you know they're doing it in men uh they've got a whole bunch of uh, variations to it so so i think the question now is not not whether it's it's you know like better or worse it's like um it's a ton of work and so how do you maximize the uh, the actual effort and i think it's important to really drill in on specific questions like Rut, russ's work was i think he did a, you know a variety of tasks and he was really interested in just natural variation uh laura's was uh Lawrence was sort of different it was like exactly how does um you know estradiol impact you know hippocampal size or progesterone impact hippocampal size or network dynamics and in, in resting state activity so i think you want to go in with specific questions i think that sort of the natural variation question you can do but it's not nearly as interesting as as having having a specific perturbation you're tracking in parallel do we think a lot about brain function changing day to day or hour to hour, minute to minute, and maybe yeah. even connectivity? But it's interesting to see such short term structural changes. Yeah, yeah, it's really surprising. We have we have a study um, right now. We we've got 30, 30 women. Um, we it wasn't a dense sampling every day, but we have them scanned at peak ovulation, um, luteal. And then uh, during their periods, um, luteal phase and menstrual phase. So, so it's th three hormonal extremes. And uh, just, yeah, there's some wild changes in, in white matter, um, hippocampal density, their size, resting state activity, all that stuff. <laughs> you name it. Um, whopping effect i mean we all kind of knew this you know women will say you know yeah depending on where i am in the cycle you know the way i think changes and these are just you know some structural and functional correlates of, of what people have experienced you know, do we have centuries. any idea of the why yet yeah so um that yeah i some of it's you know there's there's all these sort of you, you can take the evolutionary standpoint right you you want the estrogen to make you think or, or during peak ovulation you want to be thinking in terms of mate selection or not right there are all these sort of just those stories you can put on it yeah there's there's studies on attractiveness where it's like during mm -hmm. ovulation i think women are more attracted to like certain masculine features and then mm -hmm. uh off ovulation the opposite yeah and then but yeah, so that's one sort of extreme. The other is just you have to you have to remember these hormones have widespread effects on just about every cell in the body, uh, and they're not just for cognition. So, so here's an example: we see dramatic changes in uh, white matter anisotropy using really state of the art um, gradient tensor imaging techniques, basically. Increased anisotropy, increased volume. Uh, so there's essentially more water that's in a constrained compartment in your white matter uh, when estradiol is high. Why? It probably has no functional relevance to you know, mate selection or anything like that. It's just probably estradiol influences aquaporin four. We know it's that's true in animal models. There's just different amounts of water in the brain. 
that water has no place to go. The anisotropy goes up. So you get this really simple, non-psychological explanation that's just right. the effect of, of, you know, just the hormone in, in the brain. So that's that's the danger, you know, that that I like that contrast because it it not everything has a psychological explanation, right? I mean, or it needs to be ha, have an evolutionary psychological explanation. It could just be complicated hormonal interactions with with local receptors absolutely did you see a dense sampling study from a couple of years ago they were scanning people's brains every day and then they casted their arms for a couple of weeks and they took yeah. off the cast and they were looking at motor changes uh day to day yeah, yeah. um god I, I can't even remember the results the flip side of that was the yeah, what motivated that was the forced use, forced use model in rehabilitation therapy. You've got this problem. Uh, so if you have a stroke, one of the things, let's say your motor cortex and your right hemisphere, um, so your left hand's not working very well. Um, one of the problems in recovery is that the good hemisphere drives inhibitory inputs into whatever's residual in that damaged hemisphere. So you have ex excess inhibition projecting onto this system that's trying to recover, okay? And that's aggravated by using your good hand all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And so the idea is if you've got a weak right arm from a stroke, Put the left hand in a cast and force use of the impaired hand and in doing so you you change the amount of inhibitory input that goes into that side whenever you're using the good hand mm -hmm. so that's what led to those kinds of studies it was like well will we see these changes of interhemispheric inhibition when we when we in a healthy person we just stick a hand in a cast yeah, I, I remember the functional connectivity between left and right motor regions went down during the casted period and then rebounded after they took it off. Um, and there was, there was another thing, they called it spontaneous disuse pulses, as in in, in I, whatever arm region was casted, they saw just like random bursts of activity. And they were speculating whether that those were meaningful or whether it was an attempt to like rewire and form some sort of uh, new function since they couldn't be used anymore uh, or, or something else. Yeah, you have to be careful. It's not just your arm being twitchy in the cast, right? <laughs> I didn't think of that. Yeah, that, that would right? be interesting. Because, you know, yeah. Uh, but yeah, th these are really interesting ideas. Mm -hmm. I want to close, Scott, asking you what you're most excited about, either in your own research or science as a whole. Um, so what what uh, a colleague, Peter Strick, and I are really zooming in on um, the question of how do you really characterize allostatic mechanisms in the brain? And this gets kind of into your nature-nurture theme. Uh, yeah. So we all learn homeostasis and physiology, right? Which is basically the thermostat on your, most of the physiology of your organs are explained in terms of like a thermostat on the wall. If glucose is too high, you make it lower with insulin and, you know, uh, blood pressure is regulated down if it's too high and so forth. So we're just, we've got these feedback mechanisms to, to regulate all our organs. And, and that's homeostasis. And then Peter Sterling in the 90s coined this term allostasis. And the simplest way to way to phrase it is um, have anticip anticipatory changes just enough, just in time. So the simplest example is uh, stand up, right? And you don't want to stand up, have your blood pressure drop, and then react to that. You'll pass out every time you stand up. So before you're even standing, you're anticipating the physiologic requirements of the standing movement. 
um, a, a horse, actually, um, that's not a good example, but uh, oh, giving a public speech, right? That's another good one, right? Bef you know, like an hour before you give the speech in public, if you're not used to doing this, your heart's already racing, right? Um, you're anticipating either a threat or a challenge through your sympathetic responses way, way ahead of time. So now the, the game is understanding how cognition in the cortex is reaching all the way down into all your organs. Like every, every textbook just kind of shows your brainstem and all the reflexes going up to your brainstem. And it's like, yeah, the brain might be doing something too with, with, with your physiology, but whatever, we, we don't care about that. But that really matters, right? And, it, and it's a real description of health. So if you think about the social determinants of health, stress, like chronic stress, why does that lead to hypertension? Why does that lead to, you know, well, you know, lots and lots of health problems? Why does it lead, lead to adverse um, non-adaptive behaviors? Um, those, a lot of those are really just disrupting out normal allostatic mechanisms mm. you know not um and we know that physical activity is one of the, the most powerful ways of sort of resetting allostatic health what does that mean allostatic health or physical or, activity or the the, <laughs> the whole process like how, how does it reset uh this allostatic health well, we don't know but um it's certainly the case that a 20 minute walk in the woods uh, is probably more effective in controlling blood pressure, <laughs> blood pressure and stress than almost any medication I give you. Um, and so there has to be a relationship between your cognitive appraisal of that environment and, and the physical engagement you have in that environment and what mm -hmm. all your organs are doing to adapt to that environment. Very interesting. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time, Scott. You're welcome. Hope this was useful.